Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eepin, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Eric Ostrich. Say hi, Eric. Hello. And this season, season four of Elixir Wizards, we're talking about system and application architecture, and we're joined by our special guest. Today's guest is Steve Bussey. Hey, Steve. Hey. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so glad to have you. So glad to have you. We normally open up with some personal questions, and we're, so we're going to do that. But this one comes from a fan of the show. Amos King asks, what is your favorite pair of shoes? My favorite pair of shoes. That's a great question. I love that. I have two favorite pairs. I can't, I got a more formal pair and I got my like more casual pair. Yeah. So I have this pair of, it's um, Nike Dunks. The cool thing about this pair of shoes is that it's from a skateboarder and he used to paint his shoes so you couldn't tell. And then as he skated it, the paint would wear off. So the shoes come in full black paint and then they wear off into different patterns. And you can like hit it with like a little alcohol wipe and stuff if you want to like accelerate it in places. So I, I love those ones. They're super cool. And then I have a pair of Margella shoes that have paint splatters on them, which is just like, I love the look of those shoes. I didn't pay full retail price for anyone that looks those up. I bought those used. Same for the other pair too. <laughs> I've only heard of Margella in rap songs. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know which one. Yeah, it's in a different rap songs. It'll come to me though later and I'll, I'll shout out my favorite rap. Okay. I, I really, I, for some reason, I was expecting like dress shoes. Like, I thought you were going to say something like, I don't know, Carminas or something like that. But. Nah, I do have dress shoes, but actually, I don't know at what point I, I, I stopped wearing them. I think maybe when I got more into sneakers and because I can find sneakers that are dressier and that work with different outfits. So I, I've been more into sneakers. And if, if I ever go to a conference, you'll, you'll see I always bring my favorite shoes to conferences and events. How did you, just out of curiosity, like how did you get into this as like a hobby? So I think there's like a stigma around engineers, like not, maybe not having the best style taste. And like, I, I remember like I would go to conferences and stuff. I work in a sales company and, you know, you sort of get comments of like, and here's our engineer, Steve, you can tell. And, and you know, tongue in cheek, it's, it's funny. But like, I, I started thinking more about like, you know, well, what if I spend a little bit more money and like make sure I get stuff that I like and that I'm like a little bit more curating about what my outfit is. And I started getting into some like button downs, like nice button downs. And then at some point I found a, a pair of sneakers that matched this crazy button down I had and it like got me into sneakers and I started finding sneakers that matched the, the button down. So I actually uh, like can wear like a nice button down shirt, like a short sleeve or something like that, but then have like a, you know, sort of a pair of shoes that goes with that shirt, even if it's like a crazy shirt. Yeah, that's a really cool hobby. I like shoes as well. Eric, do you want to start with some real questions? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So kind of continue on the about you train. Where are you from and how long have you been into like doing programming? Yeah, so I guess now I would say I'm from Atlanta, but I originally grew up and went to school in Pennsylvania. I moved down to Atlanta six years ago about. And I've been programming probably since like the sixth or seventh grade. I used to play a lot of video games as kids do. And back then it was sort of the beginning of like when people would like, well, not the beginning, but as like MMOs were coming in and people were sort of like hacking MMOs because a lot of stuff was still client side. And I just remember like really being interested in that stuff. And I wasn't good at any of it, but it was like, it was sort of like an entryway into programming. And I would say I actually start like getting decent at programming, like actually being able to create programs from scratch back in high school and then went to school for it. 
And Elixir in particular, it's only been about three and a half or so years for me. Coming in from a Ruby shop, Elixir made a lot of sense. And you know, I've been enjoying it ever since I started. So I am a little bit curious how you found the Elixir world. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I have a coworker that he's smarter than I am. And I don't know where he heard about it. Honestly, probably from like, honestly, maybe a Ruby conference or something like that. I knew that a few years ago, like you're looking like in the four years ago, people were actually evangelizing Elixir at Ruby conferences. I haven't been to one since. Actually, since I started using Elixir, I go to Elixir conferences now. Maybe that's something that still happens. But I think he heard about it there and started looking at it. And just one of those things like whisper in your ear, like again and again and again. So that's a good way to get a colleague on board is like just bring it up and be like, oh, this would be really easy in Elixir because of XYZ or, oh, this would, you know, work really well here. And it was sort of organic over time. It probably took like six to eight months to actually like really get it to take hold and actually introduce it into the organization, as, you know, in sort of like a pilot capacity before we sort of vetted it out and, mm-hmm. you know, saw that it was working. Can you say which organization you're referring oh, to? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I work at SalesLoft nice. in Atlanta. Yep. Cool. And we'll make sure that you have time to plug them at the end of the show. Now we do have actual technical questions. And I didn't mean to say that it was like more interesting and, you know, you know, it was not an insult. This is what the people come here for the meat. You know, they want to know about the tech. They want to hear about Elixir, man. But yeah, can you just talk about like architecture? Because the theme for this season is system and application architecture. And I think that this word kind of means different things to different people. So I just want to hear what it means to you personally. Like what is architecture? Yeah, so to me, architecture is about identifying, planning, and even possibly mitigating decisions that are going to be hard to change. So I don't look at architecture as things like, what is the class structure of your application or your module structure of your application, right? That's a very low level thing that you could change that out. And probably, you know, you're going to have a not fun time doing it, but you could change that out fairly easily. Right. But I look at it as things like, you know, If you're in a microservice world, how are your systems talking to each other? Who's the authoritative source of things? You know, we say things like, you know, well, databases aren't really architecture because you can change them out. But at the same time, changing out a database sucks. I've only done it in the capacity of like a database to a very similar database. But I know that it's not something I'd want to switch out like very frequently. Right. So that's something that, you know, in the beginning of a project, maybe thinking about over time, what is this data storage going to look like in this data model? And so it's really about planning those things. It's not a, it, you know, you want to solve it, but it's about if you see that there's a possible avenue to take that could make it easier to change in the future, it's sort of about finding and going down those avenues so that eventually if you do need to change, hopefully you don't like hopefully everything goes great and it just works. But if you do need to change it, you have that avenue that you plan for yourself in advance. So one of the things that I, f- I feel like there's like you can architect a system and you can design a system. What do you think the difference between the two is? Yeah, so I just talked about architecture a lot, but I, and then design, I, I do think is a little bit different. I think design gets into the more nitty gritty of the code and the actual act and process of, of writing that code. So I would look at like your module structure as a component of design. Obviously, we have the word design pattern. So, you know, hopefully it deals with design or else maybe it's just poorly named. But, you know, when you look at design patterns, you're looking at how is this code going to interact with this other bit of code and make it so that it's easy to modify? Again, you're usually looking at making it easier for yourself, easier to change, easier to understand. So design really fits into that more tactical act of writing code. And then I think architecture is a little bit more, maybe the strategic side of code, if you will. 
a little bit more of the the planning side and just trying to see different avenues, which is one reason why like, you know, as an architect, I think a lot of people might thumb up their nose a little bit at a term like that because there's sort of a connotation of like the ivory tower architect that looks down on all the engineers and tells them what to do. But if you were all strategy, that sort of would be the case because you would not be doing anything tactically. You would just be telling other people what to do from a strategic perspective. But that's not what architects do. That's not. Yeah. Well, I guess it could be, you know, maybe at like certain companies, people fall into that trap. But something that I do and I'm very careful of is I write code more time than I'm doing anything else. And so, you know, I'm actually doing that tactical side of things. Because one thing I've seen happen is if you're only focusing on strategic, you could be missing things like, you know, well, I have this strategic decision I want to make. But if we go down this route, it's going to be five times harder to actually build the thing. And so that's something that you need to actually consider in your trade-offs or else everyone's probably going to hate you a little bit because you would be making decisions that are not taking their perspective into account and the things that they're going to have to do to realize that. Mm, I really like this idea of architecture being about the things that are difficult to change. I like that a lot. I'm going to think about it a little bit more, but I like that a lot. I think that one thing that's been coming up a lot in the Elixir world, and I think it's a product of Phoenix contexts, is domain-driven design. Can you talk a little bit about like what you think it is and what your opinions on it are? Yeah, so I definitely do not do domain-driven design. Like I haven't been taught it or really spent time like learning it in particular, because I know there's like books about domain-driven design, and some people are very big proponents of it. So I don't have enough to be like, I don't like it or anything like that. I would say I, I do a light version of it, and I probably use context in a more forgiving way than some people do. So for me, the important part of domain-driven design is making sure that things that are part of a subsystem that are different from another system subsystem are separate from each other. So that basically, the more that your subsystems that can be isolated, the more that they reach over and talk to each other directly is probably going to be like increasing your, what's well, increasing the coupling of your system and could make changing a subsystem much more difficult. So let's just give an example. Like I work at a sales company. So I'll say the phone dialer and the emailer. These are two distinct subsystems. Placing phone calls is very different from making emails. But if somehow these two systems were like at the code level linked to each other, making calls across the boundary or doing stuff, it would be really hard to change the dialer because of your emailing code, which doesn't really make, you know, that wouldn't make much sense and would probably be a pain to make those changes. So one aspect of domain-driven design and, and what Phoenix Contexts are doing is the encouragement, or at least putting it forefront in your mind that it's something you should be doing. Oh, I, hey, I should actually separate this at the code level, separate that at the code level. And then it raises the question of, you know, should I allow things to reach deeply into another space? So when I do Phoenix Contexts, I like to put all of my public interface functions at the top level in a module. And if you want to interact with that subsystem, you do it through that module via its public API. Mm -hmm. And I try to avoid those things that reach in like a.b.c.d and then call a function because now you've increased the coupling of these two systems. And it's probably not as bad in Elixir because you have a compiler. Like if I was to change a.b.c.d.function and I didn't change it somewhere else, I'd at least get a warning about that or it wouldn't compile. But in other languages like Ruby, you wouldn't get anything. You would get a runtime exception. So hopefully you have tests and stuff for it. But that can be a lot, very difficult to figure those things out in a fully dynamic, non-compiled world. 
Okay. I think I hear what you're saying. Like I'm trying to understand with how is what you described with making all of your public functions at the top level module in Elixir, how is that distinct from decoupling like subsystems as like a domain driven design? Yeah, sorry. That is how I do that. So that's how I realized that decoupling that domain driven design once I do that at the module level, usually by like making sure that things have a very well-defined public interface. I think the difference is like when you get into true, like people that are real strong DDD proponents, you're going to be looking at actually making those subsystems potentially impossible to talk to each other directly. Like you, there is no escape hatch. You must go through the public interface, which can be a little bit inflexible if you need something that would be difficult to do otherwise. Like you especially get into it if you're dealing with like a SQL database, which is you may need to do joins and stuff like that, which is inherently going to be coupling two things together. So I don't reach the level of like in Elixir that could be like umbrella apps where you actually have a domain, 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 their umbrella apps actually, you know, at the compiler level, they don't have a way to talk to each other. They'd have to like sort of be tied together through the umbrella orchestration. This is a great segue because you bring up umbrella apps. I know that Eric, you've got some opinions about umbrella apps, which I think amounts to like, don't do them. <laughs> maybe yeah. you can explain your position. <laughs> if I, so I'm not misrepresenting it. And then Steve, could you maybe talk about like, just respond to that? Yeah. So we reached for one of our first Elixir apps. We reached for an umbrella app. Um, also, could you just tell us what it is in case somebody yeah. doesn't know? So an umbrella app is an Elixir app comprised of many other apps, like locally. You have your main project and then the apps folder. And then every f- folder inside of that is its own Elixir project. They all have the same like mix.lock file and they can talk to each other. If you say the dependencies in the umbrella, it'll kind of look next door to the, in the folder structure. And then it also prevents circular dependencies. Cause I don't think like you can have one thing say that it's going to use another, but it can't request it back. So it kind of forces you to split stuff up and make sure that you only talk to things that like it should be able to or whatever. The reason I don't like them is because we reach for them way too quickly in that project's like life cycle. Like we had three applications, I think. One was like the app, and then the other two were like single files that just talked to a remote API and like was like how to like this is how we're gonna talk to Stripe. Let's have a full Stripe app or whatever. And so we just reached for it maybe incorrectly, just too early, whatever. And eventually we just got to be such a pain to work with that we just collapsed it all down to a single thing. So I feel like they might make sense once you have a bigger application and you kind of break things apart into pieces that make sense. Like I've got my one big side project. I've got what I'm calling a ponchbrella because it's not an umbrella and it's not a poncho because it's a single like Git repo, but they're just doing like dot dot path dot dot slash next to me to do it. So I don't know if it's better, but it's working. So. For me, I, I saw this on Twitter and I, I wanted to work it into my week once. I think it's applicable here, which is I don't know enough to have an opinion about it because I haven't personally used umbrellas because I think the things that I've read have been to avoid them. And I think one of the big reasons, like something I do know about from reading a lot of documentation is that libraries and in particular when you get to things around deployment and how maybe some of the major libraries expect you to work. They do usually have like a, if you're using an umbrella, do this instead. But I feel like you're sort of working against the grain a little bit. And so, you know, I feel like the documentation is always like 
regular application first. And then there's a little sort of a side about umbrellas. And then I've seen things in like the Slack channel and on the forum where people will be like, you know, hey, I'm using umbrella and I don't know how to set X, Y, Z up. And it'll be, it's just like a little bit more friction for them. And I, I haven't needed to use them because I sort of, the applications I have, because I guess maybe it's because we're using microservices at Salesoft for our Elixir apps. They're not huge domains that we're coding into an application. So maybe if, if it was a more monolithic application, the umbrella app would be a good way to split that up. So you still have one thing that you're deploying, but you're you know able to code it a little bit independently. So it'd be, it'd be something that I'd be willing to, to try out on a project, but I don't think it would be like the first thing that I would reach for if I was building like a new complex application. Like let's say one that I intended to be a monolithic type repo. I don't think I'd reach for that umbrella right away, just because I would want to reduce friction and I haven't seen the need for it over the past three years. Right, right. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing to think about. I would love it if anyone listening would reach out and share with us their experience using umbrella apps. Yeah, I'd be curious to, you know, hear, if, especially if people have like success stories, because, you know, I think it's, it's probably, you know, doing something well takes time and dedication. It's easy to, to sort of bow out and say, yeah, that didn't really work out. I'd be curious about people that put in the time and dedication to make it work. And they're like, oh, yeah, this was actually a really good thing in the end. All right. So one of the reasons we brought you on was because you have a new book out for, uh, within the last month, I think, called Real Time Phoenix. So kind of in, in the vein of that, when you start working on a new real-time feature, where do you start? Is it the front end, the back end, figuring out channel stuff or, or what? Yeah. And so I know there's definitely different schools of thoughts here. What I've always been drawn to, I don't know, it just feels more natural for me, is to start thinking about the front end. I guess one way I think about it is I'm, I'm thinking about like, all right, what's the user experience going to be? How does the user want to you know, interact with this feature and what are the different needs from that perspective. And then, you know, I usually work my way from there. Sometimes, you know, I might jump around, I might like figure out how I want the front end to be and then go to the back end and implement and then go back to the front end, especially if I'm just going to go like straight into building the channel application. Like I don't want, like sometimes I've done stuff where I'll actually mock out a front end. Like there is no back end server. I just have a fully operating front end. That's actually something that I, I actually really like to do when I'm building a new sort of more complex feature so that I can, especially if it's in something like React or whatever, so I can work out exactly how everything is going to tie together. I'll do just a completely fake, like everything's in JavaScript, there is no backend. And then I'll figure out how I want it all to work and to get the user experience right. And then I'll go and implement the backend from there. So usually you don't have too many restrictions. I think channels don't really give you that many restrictions either. You're not, it's not like you're going to have this front end design that you worked out and then go need to dramatically change it because you're using like channels or whatever you're, or it's going to be web request based. So for me, I like to figure out, you know, what I view as the important thing, which is what's the user going to be experiencing. Mm -hmm. And do you have like a pre-code design process? Like even prior to building out that front end, do you have anything that, I mean, do you whiteboard, do you sketch out on a piece of paper? What's your sort of pre-code process look like? Yeah, so it definitely depends here. Like if I'm doing a project for myself versus a project for work. Because at work we do have sort of a process that we follow for making sure that, you know, other people have sort of seen what you're gonna build, at least like your general direction that you wanna take, which we call feature development plan, so FDP. So we would put something like that together, especially if it was a bigger feature. Mainly the big thing there is you're looking for like pitfalls, like someone has some experience or some perspective that you don't have and you 
the goal would be that they can help tell you about that before you go and experience it in production. So that's something that I would do at work. And if I'm working with a team, there's going to be like whiteboard discussions and breaking everything up. It is a bit different if I was like doing something for myself. I generally, when I start a project for myself, I'm just starting sort of like, I'm doing like one right now. And I sort of have like a to-do list of like, all right, here's everything I want to do. It's sort of like my task management, I guess. It's just a, a markdown file or whatever. And then I will usually like flesh out like some of the general like data structures, that type of thing. But I, I sort of like to get right into it. So I'll do like more, especially when I'm doing stuff for myself, because it may be stuff that has, I just haven't done it before. So I'll do a more spike type stuff. Like write some code, make it not pretty. It doesn't need to really work that well. I just need to flesh out the idea and then I'll you know, throw it out and actually make something better and copy paste stuff around and whatnot. So it depends. I personally like to just get right into stuff and what I'll normally do. Like I remember I, the first iOS app, for example, I ever wrote, I shipped it to the Apple store and it was for myself. So it wasn't work related. And the app ended up, I think the folder was still called Hello World in like the final thing that I shipped to the store. Cause I was just like, I was starting to get into it. And I started to flush stuff out and I was like, oh, I can actually see what I want to do here. And then I was just like, all right, let's just do it and go. And by the time I wanted to rename it, it was like, it was going to be so much hassle to redo it just because of like the iOS world that I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and ship it. What was the app? Like what did, what did it, it, it was called Noisy Dog Log. I took it off the store because no one ever bought it and I didn't want to pay a hundred dollars a year. I had like an extra iPhone or iPad and my dog. So we, we have a Greyhound and I think they're generally susceptible to getting separation anxiety during the day. And so rather than watching the webcam and having it being an active process and rather than spending $250 on a new piece of hardware like a Nest Cam, I just repurposed my iPad. It would sit there and listen all day based on the ambient noise. If it got above a certain threshold of that within like a five second period, it would sort of start recording and register a push event. And then I would be able to get it for my other device and be able to see that, oh, hey, yeah, my dog is barking right now. I couldn't listen to it until he was done. So he had barked for a long time before, so I couldn't actually tell until the end. But, you know, it, it was a cool little app and it worked really great for me. You know, I, I didn't really market it or anything or try to push it. Like in hindsight, if I wanted to, people to actually buy it, I should have done that better, but it was cool. Very cool. Yeah, we once at my last job, we built an app that did that, except with human beings who snore. So <laughs> definitely, a, there's definitely a market for it. Yeah, that's yes, right. So when you're developing uh, new real time stuff, what is the like? What are some gotchas? What's the toughest part of developing real time stuff? So this is the great thing about Elixir and Phoenix and what they've done. Developing it is probably the easier part of of the process. I feel like the documentation for things like channels are really good. The front end client is really easy to work with and, and so is the back end. So from that development perspective, I do think, you know, there's not major gotchas there. When I saw issues was in the actual rollout process and shipping it into production. So an example of that would be uh, the first real-time app that I ever did, the one that sort of spurred my desire to do something about it and that do something ended up being writing a book about it and doing some like upstream contributions as well was, you know, it probably took three to four weeks to build this app. And then the rollout process took six months because I would ship it out. And, and there's a blog post about like all the different things I, I ran into on my, on stevenbussy.com. There's a, I think it's called memory isn't free. It was about the memory issues I ran into. You know, I would ship out this app and, and, and we're going to have to ship it out to tens of thousands of users. And I would ship it out to 400 users and see that, all right, the server's taking up a gig of memory. 
So I do a bit of extrapolation from that and figure out that like, all right, I'm looking at like 30 to 50 gigs of memory just to get the connections for this real-time app all set up. And that process of undoing that and figuring out where I went wrong took a good bit of time and about you know a good bit of load testing and whatnot. The end result of that had to do a lot with if you return big payloads in a Phoenix channel response, you have to basically garbage collect both the channel and the WebSocket process itself because it actually does the serialization from the server to the client and that takes memory. Like you're doing something, it's not free. And that's not in the typical garbage collection path that Phoenix sort of provides you. And so you have to actually send it a message to garbage collect. So it's things like, all right, I need to make sure I'm triggering garbage collection at the right time. In that case also, one thing I did was if I'm going to have this big response go to the server and then get a big payload and send it back, actually just spawning a process to do that, let the process do the request and send the response. And then the process just, you know, when it's done making the request, the process goes away. So you don't have any memory garbage there because the process goes away and it takes all of its memory with it. Versus if you do a big request or it could be a big database request or a big API request in the channel itself, you're hanging on to that memory now because there is latent memory for just sort of how Erlang's garbage collector works. If you miss the major garbage collection cycle, you could end up with a fair bit of latent memory sitting around. And that that was a really frustrating process for me because I, I had this app that I wanted to ship and I just couldn't I couldn't ship it because it was going to take up more resources than any other app in our cluster. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about testing real-time features? Because I think that's something that probably confuses a lot of people when they're getting started. Yeah, so as usual, I'd look at like two types of tests for real-time features. You're going to have your typical unit tests. Mm-hmm. Then you're also going to have, I guess there's three types. You're going to have the unit tests Maybe you're going to have automated integration tests, and then you're going to sort of have that, that human integration test as well. So for us, we have a QA team that is doing manual testing of the application when there's new features to make sure that things are working as expected. So the Elixir-based unit testing, there's good libraries for it, but it can be a little bit weird. I think you know testing in Elixir can get a little bit complex because you're dealing with uh, processes. So you're not like in one process and you're just going through tests. You, you know, you're spawning off a different process for the actual channel. Maybe you have a global process somewhere. You have to worry about how the, how those things are going to interact with the database. Maybe if you want to mock something, you have to worry about how that mock is going to get into the inner process. So it can be a little bit tricky, but there's pass forward for all that. You, you can write really good unit tests for all of your real-time features. And Phoenix provides that out of the box with a channel test that comes with Phoenix and LiveView as well. Now that LiveView is out and, you know, coming into maturity, there's good testing for that and to make sure that your LiveView is working properly. And and it benefits from channels because it's built on top of channels. So you're getting a lot of those of that strong foundation there. The other really important thing that that could be missed, especially if it's like a small team or, or a new project, would be that human integration test of actually going through it and trying to put weird situations in place. You know, one of the ones that we were, that we ran into, for instance, was around everything's connected, your laptop's open and everything, and then you shut the lid, and then you walk away for an hour and you come back and open the lid back up. And we ran into some issues where it like wouldn't reconnect. So that was one where it's like, all right, let's figure out what's going on there. And unit testing that or integration testing that automated is going to be just really hard to do. So there is sort of that human aspect that's so useful. And then 
there were other things as well that that would come up in the testing world that our, our QA team probably found like three, four, you know, different things that we hadn't thought about in the actual development and are things that would be probably not come up too often, but we are able to find them and, and get them caught. And I don't know them all off the top of my head because it's it's been a little while, but it would be stuff around and usually particularly to our application, how reconnections would work. We also have a Chrome extension. How would the Chrome extension work throughout this life cycle? Those sorts of things, they, they were really helpful in. So you mentioned LiveView in that. Do you use LiveView? What are your thoughts on this? Like, Does LiveView replace 90% of the book that you wrote? So yeah, that's a great question. So one thing I, I mentioned previously is that LiveView is built on the foundations of channels. So I do think there is this important aspect of understanding how channels work and understanding what you can do with them because you can do the same things with LiveView. So for example, if you're building a data pipeline, you need to move data around your system and eventually get it to the user's LiveView. That's going to be exactly the same between LiveView and channels because it's based on Phoenix PubSub. So you're going to need to know those exact things. Deployment, you're going to run into the same issues there because you're running with WebSockets and live views based on channels. So it's going to have that same story of deployment and, and the different things you should do there. Potentially maybe more sensitive on deployment because if your servers are down, there is no, it's not offline compatible. So if your servers are down, you, you would have issues. So you need to be even more cautious with deployment than you would be for channels. If your channels goes down and maybe it's just like a, a thing that augments your application, the thing that augments is gone for a little bit, but your app's still there. So that is something that, you know, you'd have to be really careful of. And then I think LiveView is generally, though, like great for the community. People are really excited about it. People that are building applications with it seem to really like it. It doesn't fit our use cases at SalesLoft. And so we have used it on some internal apps for developer enablement type tooling. And that seemed to work really well for the team that did that. And I think that they enjoyed using it. For our main platform, I think the constraints of it wouldn't work for us in particular. And then also we have to do a lot of things over JSON because like I mentioned, we have the, the Chrome extension, we have mobile app. So a lot of our stuff is JSON as the primary mechanism for communication. So that that's really important to us. The fun thing about LiveView is that you can turn an existing Phoenix-based static rendered page into a LiveView really easily. So example there from the book is in the last chapter or the second to last chapter, I think it is, I sort of forget now. We actually take the project that we had worked on earlier in the book, which is channels based. And I, I did the sort of different ways that you might use channels to get HTML to the front end. Honestly, it's not the most fun thing to do, the, the, the channel side of things. You had to do like your own HTML parsing on the JavaScript side, or you had to do HTML rendering in the channel and pass it down. But then we go through and we rewrite that into live view. And it's awesome because you just, you copy paste the template and you copy paste it to a file with a different extension. And then you add in your live view and you, you set up your render and you set up your binding to the Phoenix pub sub. And in about 20 lines of code, the thing that we had built earlier in the book was able to be turned into a live view without all the JavaScript that had been associated to it. So we removed the JavaScript. So we had less code and we didn't have to go and rewrite anything. We just added the live view stuff because we were able to render to utilize the same templates other than a, a change file name. So I, I really liked that. I thought it was awesome. It shocked me. Like I, I knew that it was going to be an important part of the chapter to show people that it's easy to turn something into a live view. But when I actually did it and I was like, that was easier than I thought it was going to be. It actually did surprise me and take me back. And I think I even had sent something to Bruce Kate at that time to be like, to be like, man, that 
like you're definitely right here because he's he's been talking about live view and how it's a game changer and i was like i just did xyz with it on the book and it was painless and it was way easier than i thought it was going to be i'm excited about it i don't know if i have a, a use case for it right now you know maybe in the future i'll have a use case for it i think people that are using it you know seem to really like it and you know great for the community obviously you're looking at phoenix one five and what they're doing with live dashboard and getting live view i assume close to that 1.0 mark i don't know any plans around that but the community is really excited about it i have a note here that you have a funny story about writing that chapter of the book oh yeah it was just it was just how easy it was to do it like the fact that i had expected it to be easy and then blew my own mind with how easy it was and like was taken aback You're really good at explaining these things. <laughs> it's been interesting to listen to you. When you're designing applications, like how are you thinking about security inside of your architecture? How are you thinking about authentication, authorization? Like where are you putting this? Are you putting it in the context of the controller level? Yeah, so this is really important for me and for SalesLoft. And if I was to write a new like application, this would be really important for me there as well. A lot of software, at least in like the web world these days, is SaaS-based where you basically have potentially multiple teams in the same application. You know, you have a user that signs in, they're going to be different from another user. And you need to make sure that you have these contexts set up. Well, when I say context, I don't mean Phoenix context. I mean like authentication and authorization contexts. So if you do it wrong, you're going to end up leaking data to someone that shouldn't see it. And leaking data is the, the number one worst thing that can happen to a web application. It's 10 times worse than having downtimes. No one's going to sue you over downtime. People are, you know, potentially you get yourself into like lawsuit territory when you start sharing people's data, especially if it's private. So I definitely care a lot about this. So luckily, one thing I mentioned is that at SalesLoft, a lot of our Elixir code is microservice based. Well, all all of it is microservice based. We have a Ruby sort of monolith that is the legacy of the past. And we still add stuff to that, but, you know, we don't add a whole lot of new stuff to it. So that's sort of where our authentication is sort of born and lives. And we pass around JWT tokens to our microservices. And we make sure that everything we do in a microservice has that context on it. So we want to know the user that's requesting it and the tenant is that's requesting it. So we can do things like put that in our database queries. And if we have any other things that happen, make sure they have that contextual information on them so that we remove the chance of running into issues. One of the things I had worked on in the past, I don't know, it's probably been four months or so now, or maybe even five or six, was a way to enforce tenancy being set on Ecto queries. So essentially, you have to make your Ecto query with a certain column present. So in the case, uh, let's just call it tenant ID. You have to say where tenant ID equals one or something like that. And if you do joins, you have to make sure that your joins have tenancy on the joins as well. And it, it basically goes into a whole bunch of edge cases that you have to handle to have tenancy properly set up. Uh, like You can't do things like say where tenant ID equals one or tenant ID equals two, because now you could have two tenants worth of data coming back from the query. Once you get into administrative parts of code, you may need to do stuff like that, but you should never need to do that as part of your normal code path. So that's something I've been putting in Elixir projects that I work on now. If I had a multi-tenant application, I would add that in from day one to prevent any sort of O moments where you accidentally realize that you've been making a query with the wrong tenant ID or something like that, and you just showed someone someone else's data. So I I guess if if you have a multi-tenant applications like that might have a lot of data and whatnot that you're you're potentially loading so like how do you deal with like any performance issues that you might encounter and i guess if you talk about it in the book like specifically with websocket real-time stuff 
Yeah. So performance is also top of mind for me often. It was probably about eight months ago or so now, or maybe it's even been a full year. I actually was like, hey, we need to dedicate time to just spending time on getting performance up. So I actually had a colleague and I that literally went through everything that we could possibly find to like increase performance. And we're able to, we were able to increase it fairly significantly in the application. There's some very basic things that people talk about. You get into things like a lot of people have performance issues when it comes to their database. So that's obviously something that to look at, making sure that you don't have N plus one queries, which Ecto, I love the fact that it's really hard to make an N plus one query in Ecto versus in Rails, where it's very easy to make. The, it's like N plus one is the default in Rails and an error is the default in Ecto, which is absolutely the right thing to happen. So, you know, there's that basic type stuff. One of the big things for me, at least in our APIs, because we do have a public API that anyone can hit, anyone that's like a, any customer or partner can hit it, just as you probably can't unless you go and sign up. So people are hitting this and they're often doing things like, I want to slurp all of my data down, which usually you don't need to do, but people sort of get it in their head that that's what they want to do. And they want to do that every hour to check things. And it's like, yeah, there's probably better ways to do this, but I can't stop you. Like you're allowed to use the API. So one of the things that we do there is like when we're doing things like pagination, we recommend not using like page ID offsets because in Postgres, that's really non-performant. So we use what I call cursor-based polling where you say, you know, my cursor is X, give me everything greater than that. And then you sort of keep moving your cursor so that you're always at page one in your database, but you're shifting through the data in like a windowing type fashion. Hmm. So that's one that like significantly increases our performance on the API by doing that versus the typical pagination. How did you come up with that? I think it was sort of natural for us, honestly. So we had pagination originally, just normal standard, and we still have pagination. And we were seeing the performance issues from it. So we sort of said, well, what are the alternatives? So you, in Postgres, you can do things like actual cursors in the database, but that requires transactions, which are incredibly expensive in practice. Transactions are the thing that will bring our app down. So we have to be very careful about opening them. So it's like, all right, well, if that's not on the table, what's the other thing? And it's like, well, essentially it's a cursor. A cursor is a opaque string that you give back to the request every time you make it. And every time you make the request, you're going to get a new cursor back. And so we just sort of implemented that in like application land mm -hmm. rather than in the database. And we allow you to do cursors based on like IDs or maybe timestamps. Timestamp is definitely the, the best one to do because you can provably prevent yourself from missing any data if you have like data updates going on and whatnot. So that's sort of how that one came about. And we will still get hit with people that are doing pagination, but we like also made it expensive. So when it comes to our rate limits and stuff like that, we like boost the cost of your API queries. If you're using typical pagination, we like do everything we can do to get you to not use pagination and we use the cursor base. So one of the things that we do with our real-time apps is we try to prevent ourselves from having to go to the database. So one of the things that we have is like a website tracking mechanism. And rather than going to the database, constantly to, to figure out who's on that and to send those updates down to know who's on your website that are your prospects. Instead, we keep that in memory so that any time that the channel is asked or it needs to be updated, everything's in memory. So you have these very fast performant queries, especially with the amount of throughput that happens on that service. That's an important one. And then the other big performance thing that has popped up on our real-time apps, in our case, a lot of real-time apps are getting data from a, a source like let's say another API is pushing data up in a, in a post API. They're maybe doing something with the data, maybe saving it to the database, maybe enriching it further because they're actually doing something as a service and then passing it down to the client. 
So one of the things that had hit us in the past is using things like task.async to do something like, let's just task.async fetch something from the database or task.async hit this API. And it quickly came crashing down on us because we essentially had this unbounded parallelism in our application where things were hitting other APIs at like 4,000 requests per second when it should have been like 4,000 requests per minute. It's like everything came in at once and just overwhelmed downstream systems. So the takeaway from that was to stop using task.async. And we had switched over to GenStage because it gives you a pooling mechanism out of the box. It's like, for me, I, I copy paste some lines of code. It takes me five minutes to have a, like a very basic memory data pipeline set up with GenStage. So that's what I've been using on those types of projects. And the big reason for that is that controlled parallelism. So you, instead of having 4,000 things reach out to an API, maybe you have 30 things that are able to reach out to that API at once. And honestly, the things happen so quick anyway that we don't see any issues from that. We're able to have really performant data pipelines still. And that is a chapter in the book. That's probably the one that I was most excited to actually write, which is about how to write a data pipeline. And I think it's called the performance pitfalls. It's looking at things that can really drag your application performance down. So having an unintentional data pipeline is one of those things. So if you're calling like task.async to do things, I would say that's usually unintentional. You haven't really planned out what's the ramifications of doing that. Not to say there's not use cases for task.async, but you know, in my experience, when I did that, it was because I wasn't thinking ahead and planning it out. Or if you're in a channel, a channel is a process. Yeah. A process can handle one message at a time. So if you're sending a lot of messages to a channel and expecting them to respond back quickly to you, you either need to make things async by using like uh, spawned processes that can respond back to the client. That's something that Phoenix Channel supports out of the box. And I just had even read a forum post today where someone was asking about how do I do this in Phoenix Channels because I'm, I'm getting delays because things are backing themselves up. So Phoenix provides that out of the box. So that's another thing is like making sure that you're not overwhelming your, your channels with expensive operations. Could you talk about like some of the deployment considerations one might want to be aware of when going to production with a real-time application? Yeah, so that's a really great point around deployment. I think that we have it fairly good now, but it, there's still a lot of gotchas with it. So the biggest gotcha with deployment of real-time apps is that when your application is deploying, you know, unless you're using hot code reloads, which I think most people in the community are probably not using hot code reloads today, unless they have a very particular use case for it. I'd say most people are using like a more classic sort of, you know, bring it down and bring another one back up type thing. So that's, that's what I use. So if, you're, if you bring it down so that it can come back up with a new code, your clients are disconnecting and then reconnecting. And it might only be a half second that that takes, but, you know, that's something, that's a point of downtime in your application and you can even get things where you come down, you come back up, you connect to a server that's also about to come down. So you come back down again, you come back up. You know, if you had 20 servers in a rolling deploy, the chance that you're going to get multiple failing servers is very high. So that's something to consider when you think about uptime availability, especially with something like LiveView where your application actually, you want it to be as up as possible. So I, I would personally be more careful if I were deploying a LiveView application just for that. I would be thinking about you know, what's the ramifications of the server going down and whatnot. The other thing that can happen is you can end up overwhelming one of your servers really easily. So, you know, with a, with a WebSocket connection, you are connecting to a server and then you're just basically going to stay there until you disconnect, which could be hours. You know, I've, I've seen WebSocket connections last days. People just like leave their desktop up and they have a, a, a page open and the WebSocket connection is open. 
So load balancers are typically a little bit more passive where it will be when a request comes in, let me load balance it. And maybe even, you know, you can do things around like the number of connections that are present, but at least the ones I've worked with and the ones that are on like Amazon for our application don't have that option. They're just like route it in like a round robin fashion. So we would do a deployment and end up with, you know, one or two servers that have 10 people connected and one or two servers that have 10,000 people connected. So you get a big disparity. And let's say that, that you were then getting alarms going off saying you have load issues. So you say, oh, let's add some new servers to the system. Well, those new servers are going to come online with zero people connected. So you didn't actually help your load problem. So one of the things that we do there is our servers are constantly pinging each other, asking how many connections do you have? How many connections do you have? And basically they aggregate that information together. And the one that has the most connections will look at the difference between themselves and the average. And if they're with outside of a certain threshold, they'll actually terminate a certain percentage of connections and those connections will reconnect. So if you do a rolling deployment within let's say 10 minutes in our application, every server is balanced within like a, a five to 10% margin. Whereas when we started deploying real-time apps, we would do a rolling deployment and it would be 10,000% margins between the first and last server. You should definitely package that up and push it out to Hex. <laughs> I have a GitHub repo for it. I actually was looking at this the other day because I was, I was thinking about it and I was like, how close is it to releasing? It's usable right now. It is the code that we're using at SalesOff. It's been running in production for over a year and a half now without any issue. So it probably could be released pretty quickly. The only thing that I was hesitant on, and I had, because I, I had one at uh, the Elastic Conf, what is now Dashbit sort of consulting package for a month. And this is one of the projects I took to Jose to say, hey, what are your thoughts on this and how might you approach this? And he had a few different suggestions than the route that I went. So I was a little bit hesitant to release it onto Hex just because it may not fit other people's use cases. But like I said, we've been using it for a good while now and it's worked really well. So that is something I might look at actually releasing. If you can get some users for it, then I'll be more motivated. Maybe if there's like a need for it, if people hear this and they're like, I wish I had that, then hit me up and then I'll be, I'll be motivated to, to open source it. <laughs> well, it is open source, but I'd be willing to package it into a 1.0 release. Mm. You heard him, folks. <laughs> Tweet at us. Which sort of brings us to the end of the episode. I want to give you a chance to uh, sell us on your book, although I think that this conversation probably has sold us on your book. But I'll give you more time to sell us on your book and also any other final plugs or asks for the audience that you want to, you know, anything you want them to do, find you on social media, where to find info on Sales Loft or get involved with any open source projects you want to support. So the book is Real Time Phoenix by Pragmatic Bookshelf. It's Release now. You can get print copy on Amazon or ebook on Pragmatic Bookshelf website. I, I think if you're if you're hesitant about it, I would suggest looking at some of the different customer reviews and seeing what people have thought about it. I love Amos King's quote about that the knowledge in this book is sort of hard won knowledge is going to help you make informed decisions about your project. So, which is definitely true. I mentioned this this project that was very frustrating to work on and get released, and basically. This book is sort of the distillation of that frustration into a physical form of like, here's the book I wish I had before I started this project so that I wouldn't have been so frustrated and I wouldn't have spent you know, six months getting a service into production that should have taken two weeks. So you know, definitely check that out. And, and let's say maybe you haven't done real-time apps or you haven't used Phoenix channels, or maybe you, you, know, you could be listening to this and maybe you haven't really done that much Elixir development. 
So one of the great things about pragmatics, all of their book styles are this way, and it's a style that I definitely adopted for this book, is that all of the examples in the book, you can go through and basically, number one, you're, you're getting all the code, but then as you go through the examples, everything is broken into the code snippets that are explained really well, and then you can just copy paste those essentially into your own project. So let's say that you don't know Elixir that well, and you're you know, reading the book, you could just type the code, maybe you don't fully understand all the elixirisms yet, but as you go through the book and as you see more elixir, things will start to click and you're not gonna get hung up on the small things of like, this project is just not working because you can just grab the code from online and use that or you can just enter the code exactly as it is in the book. Got it. Eric, anything else we should talk about before we sign off? I think we're good. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And we'd love to have you back sometime. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you once again to our guest, Steve Bussey, and my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am just a seepin'. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Justice Epen, and you can find Eric at Eric Ostrich. And join us again next week for Elixir Wizards for more conversation about application and system architecture. Mm-hmm.